This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. Welcome to This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. This is episode number five, recorded on April 5th, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Maureen O'Brien, from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Today on TWIPO, we are going to discuss a fascinating topic, and that is hedgehog signaling. Sounds a bit crazy, I know, but there's a growing body of literature about hedgehog signaling in cancer and possibly using it as a target to treat cancer. And there's some very interesting papers that were recently published that we're going to talk about that raise some ethical issues uh, for patients, uh, families, and physicians. And as always, we will try in future episodes to address your questions or comments, so be sure to send your inquiries to TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. And just by way of follow-up from our last episode, there was a couple comments I wanted to make. As you recall, uh, Dr. Geller and I discussed the uh, new immunotherapy results for synovial cell sarcoma and other cancers. Um, and I just wanted to mention a few things. Uh, Dr. Rosenberg did the similar kind of study uh, targeting a CEA antigen in colon cancer, but in that study they had a lot of uh, GI toxicity. So the patients got colitis, and, and so they basically concluded that wasn't the best target. Uh, so although we were very enthusiastic in our last episode about this whole approach, there's obviously certain targets that are not going to be very appropriate for this approach, and that seems to be one of them. Uh, the other comment is that they were using NYESO1 to target both melanoma and synovial cell sarcoma, but there's really a fair amount of literature that that antigen is expressed in other tumors as well, particularly like in some pediatric cancers like neuroblastoma. So it may very well be that that's something that's going to be exportable to a lot of other cancers. So that that's very exciting. And then finally, I just wanted to mention um, Malcolm Brenner has done similar kinds of work targeting GD2 in neuroblastoma, but instead of using uh, T cells that were extracted from the patient uh, and not modified other than the T cell receptor, he used T cells that had been uh, sensitized to EBV, and therefore they were long-lived and memory T-cells. And so I think there's a lot of nuances to this strategy that might might make it better in the future. So it's certainly an exciting field that we'll continue to follow on TWIPO. So Maureen, today we have a different topic, and that is, we mentioned, hedgehog signaling. The particular cancer types we're going to talk about are brain tumors. There's intrinsic pontine glioma which Jim Geller last week mentioned the conference that we had here a couple weeks ago uh, surrounding uh, DIPGs, and then also medulloblastoma. But these topics may apply to a lot of other cancers as well that uh, seem to involve hedgehog signaling. It seems to be an important molecule in development and, and stem cells. This first paper, then, is one by Philip Beachy at Stanford at the Institute uh, for Stem Cell Biology and regenerative, regenerative Medicine. And Dr. Beachy is a Ph.D. scientist who actually cloned the hedgehog gene in Drosophila. Uh, and I think it's named after the fact that cells get uh, sort of a prickly appearance, but um, doesn't really have anything to do with the hedgehog animal itself. Uh, and this paper has a number of authors, 
and it turns out the second paper we're going to talk about is from the same person as the senior author, but a completely different set of co-authors. So it's quite interesting that there's a large, two large groups of people tied together by Dr. Beachy here. And uh, this was sort of a seminal paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, just published uh, March 15, 2011, entitled Hedgehog Responsive Candidate Cell of Origin for Diffuse Intrinsic Pontine Glioma. And basically, uh, one of the things that they talk about is that tissue is not readily available for these cancers because these are uh, arise in the brainstem of patients, and unfortunately, they're quite deadly. Most patients don't survive uh, these cancers, especially the ones that are in the ventral part of the pons, a uh, particular area of the brainstem. And uh, they don't. it's very risky to get biopsy specimens. So there hasn't been a lot studied about them. But in this particular study, they do report uh, 24 post-mortem brainstem samples uh, in, in normal patients to look at stem cells and cells that might give rise to these cancers, and they found a very interesting distribution of, of cells. So there are these cells they mark with uh, certain markers, and particularly nestin, uh, that is a protein that marks often brain tumor stem cells. And there was a very high prevalence of these in the ponds where these brain tumors develop and not in a lot of other areas of the brain. And in fact, they show a graph where the peak incidence of these cancers are in the 4 to 8 age range, and that's sort of the peak incidence of where they found these cells in, in normal humans post-mortem. And so that was interesting as a correlation that maybe these cells are in some way involved in, in this kind of cancer. And they went on to show in a mouse model uh, that um, these cell types are present in a similar kind of region in the mouse, they also increase in what they consider mid-childhood uh, of the mouse, similar to what they're seeing in the human samples. And they mark with a couple other uh, different proteins in the mouse than they do in the humans, but they share a lot of common features. And they were able to show that uh, this hedgehog pathway, which is an important signaling pathway in stem cells, uh, when it's inhibited, uh, sorry, when it's overexpressed, uh, it actually leads to cancers in these mice that are similar to diffuse intrinsic pontine gliomas. And furthermore, they went on to show uh, from a patient they were able to get some tissue from and grow the cells uh, in media and then inject them into the lateral ventricles of the brain or into the fourth ventricle of the brain that these cells uh, form tumors, and in fact, compared to other kinds of brain cancers where they did similar injections, these cells had a predilection to invade in the brainstem and grow, and in fact, were indistinguishable in histology in the immunodeficient mice from the original patient's brain tumor. So it seems like they have both a, a genetically modified mouse model and a xenograft mouse model uh, to model now uh, diffuse intrinsic pontine ligomas. And in the end, they also show that an inhibitor based on a drug called cyclopamine uh, is able to inhibit the growth of these cells in culture. Uh, and, and so to, basically they provide a preponderance of evidence, I would say, that suggests the hedgehog pathway, uh, which is a complex signaling pathway, uh, may, may be involved in the generation of, of these kinds of cancers that are not very well studied and 
are quite deadly and that we need to learn more about. you have any questions about this paper or comments about what you've read? No, I thought it was really interesting that it really highlighted the challenge of having tumor tissue to work with and the amazing uh, work that they were able to do with the donation of a particular patient who had died of a pontine glioma and were able to really study the tissue. And I thought they really made the interesting point that these pontine progenitor cells um, that they think are the stem cell population that they could show in the pons and also in the um, medulla area of the brain, but absent from the midbrain, and they made the point that you don't get gliomas in the midbrain region, suggesting that it really is something about that as the precursor cell, and then the next step being, you know, what is it that this pathway is being activated at this age of four to eight years? Why is that the time when they're growing? And if sonic, if the, if excuse me, if the hedgehog pathway is um, part of the normal differentiation or development and is dysregulated is that an area that you could target? And I thought they demonstrated that really quite nicely in here, that that may be the driving factor behind why these tumors form. So I think that's a nice segue to the next paper to say, if that is the pathway that we need to go after therapeutically, how are we going to make that happen? You know, in, in one of their mouse models where they had an um, overactive uh, hedgehog pathway, they, they had an increase in size of the brainstem but, and, and hypertrophy of, or uh, hyperplasia of the cells, but they didn't really get cancers there. And so um, it's not a perfect model, and that suggests to them that other hits are needed besides hedgehog pathway hits in generating these, these cancers. Um, and that would be consistent with a lot of tumor models in which you have some driving force that's causing proliferation, but unless you get additional mutations, um, you don't actually develop into a full-blown cancer. So maybe it's a initiating step, but not the only story. So that raises the question about if you, in, if you inhibit that pathway, is that going to be sufficient to either you know, kill the tumor cells or, or maybe just at least slow them down or... Um, and that's obviously one of the questions about what's an appropriate target um, in drug development. One of the corollaries to that in the world of leukemia in particular is T-cell leukemias that very, very commonly have mutations and overexpression of the notch pathway, and yet it's been thus far very difficult, despite targeting notch, to have that actually be active in killing leukemia cells because of all the other mutations they've accumulated that they can escape that. So while it may be the driver, it may not be the, the, the way to treat them. On the other hand, we know that certain cancers, even leukemia like CML, mm -hmm. where there's a driver like BCR-ABL, you inhibit it with Gleevec and you can have... And the response well, is amazing. Yeah, exactly. So certainly it's exciting to be able to identify a potential target in a cancer where there was none previously. And then the question is, can you hit that target effectively without harming normal cells, hit it safely, and is it going to be enough? Or you know, how many other targets are you going to have to hit with it? And this target, this hedgehog signaling, appears to be important in uh, basal cell carcinoma and medulloblastoma, another brain tumor, and uh, probably upregulated in a lot of different kinds of cancers. And that other hit that they talk about, there's some evidence that they suggest in this paper, it, uh, PDGF uh, signaling may be important. So moving on to the next paper sort of discusses a lot of these issues that we're talking about in terms of targeting but also raises some other ethical issues. 
So this paper is from Cell uh, Press, uh, the journal called Cancer Cell, very high-level journal, again, out of Dr. Beachy's laboratory. This is from last year, April 13, 2010, and a uh, completely different set of co-investigators with Dr. Beachy, so he's obviously working with a lot of different groups of people. Uh, this is actually, they list five different divisions at Stanford, uh, and then there's co-investigators from five different institutions. They actually list six of them, but to me it appears one one of them is from a person who has a joint appointment at two of those at two institutions. And these five institutions are spread over four different states. So this is really a, an amazing tour de force and of interdisciplinary team science uh, that where a lot of different people from a lot of different places seem to have come together to make an interesting finding. And it really has to do with drug repositioning. So this group looked at uh, whether or not they could do a drug screen, a screen of various drugs to see what might inhibit the hedgehog pathway, and they wanted to focus on agents that are already drugs and FDA-approved for other diseases. So they screened about 2,400 FDA-approved or post-phase 1 drugs that are now part of the Johns Hopkins Clinical Compound Library, and they used a, um, a screen tool where they could activate uh, a gene that would, a reporter gene, luciferase, that was driven by uh, a promoter that included uh, GLI-1 sites, GLI-1, and these are responsive to hedgehog signaling. Um, and so uh, in that way, they could tell uh, which drugs turned on this luciferase. Interesting, they came up with uh, microtubule inhibitors like vinca alkaloids, so vincristine is the best known of that, uh, but basically said the toxicity of that chemotherapy drug is difficult to have a prolonged exposure to hit the target and therefore wasn't necessarily an ideal antagonist for the hedgehog pathway. But the other one that rose to the top was, surprisingly, a antifungal drug, itraconazole. This is one of the well-known azole drugs that um, inhibit some critical uh, fungal enzymes. Um, the one that this uh, itraconazole inhibits uh, is has to do with cholesterol synthesis. Uh, it inhibits one of the steps in that. And that's important for fungus uh, to grow, and therefore it has a broad activity against a large, large number of different fungi, including aspergillus and candida and histoplasmosis. And we certainly use it uh, clinically all the time. Um, but it rose to the top in terms of uh, potency of hedgehog signaling. So they wanted to look at that, uh, of inhibiting hedgehog signaling. They wanted to look at that further in this paper, and first asked, is that a property of the other azoles, the other antifungals, and it wasn't. Some of them inhibited it a little, but some of them didn't. Fluconazole, for instance, didn't have any real activity against hedgehog signaling, whereas itraconazole had remarkable activity on IC50, so it inhibited 50% um, uh, of their signal uh, with 800 nanomolar concentration, which is pretty good for a drug, um, and is along the levels that can be achieved in humans. Um, and then they did a whole series of biochemical experiments to look at what part of the pathway in the hedgehog signaling that this affected. So without trying to go into it in detail, um, hedgehog signaling is really mediated by a protein in the membrane called smoothened that uh, turns on GLI-1 that then goes on and turns on a bunch of genes. And this protein smoothened in the membrane is inhibited by another protein called PATCH, P-T-C-H, and... When, when patch receives a signal from the outside, a hedgehog 
like it. Name, the main one that's best known is Sonic Hedgehog. Um, it it uh, no longer can inhibit smoothen and smoothen is able to to signal. And so they they did a number of biochemical experiments and and uh, genetic experiments and basically make the conclusion that uh, itraconazole doesn't affect patched or patch signaling and an inhibition of smoothen, but it affects smoothen itself. Either directly or, or indirectly by some other mechanism, it wasn't completely clear. Uh, but it seems to inhibit it in a different way from other known hedgehog inhibitors. So cyclopamine is a classic inhibitor of hedgehog signaling, uh, and there are cyclopamine-like drugs now in clinical trial, namely one from Genentech, uh, and there's another one from Novartis. Uh, in fact, we Novartis one is in, in a clinical trial in pediatrics now uh, for a variety of different cancers. But this itraconazole appears to work differently from those drugs uh, and quite potently. And so in the end, they basically conclude that, uh, oh, and they also show that it actually worked in a model of cancer, two different models of cancer. They used a, a medulloblastoma model that was implanted subcutaneously into animals, and that single agent alone, itraconazole, thought of as normally as an antifungal, was able to almost shut down tumor growth for a couple of weeks. Uh, in, and in fact, when used with cyclopamine, the two of them together were even better. Uh, so they're, they're both acting on smoothened, but they're acting on different aspects of it, different binding sites, it appears. Uh, and they were able to find that the tumor and the serum had similar concentrations, and they affected the GLI-1, so they, it was doing all the things that they predicted it to do. Um, and then they proposed, in the end, that perhaps there should be a clinical trial. So I guess this paper raises a couple of issues for me, and certainly if parents or even physicians were able to you know, look at these papers, glance at them, and say, hey, itraconazole inhibits hedgehog signaling. Hedgehog signaling is important for, for DIPG or medulloblastoma. We use this drug all the time. Let's let's just put our patients on it. Um, what do you think, Maureen? Is that a good idea? <laughs> put you on the spot. No problem. Well, I think that it highlights a lot of important issues. Um, one thing I really liked about this was that they brought up the issue of drug development and how long it takes to get new drugs from the laboratory into patients and really develop them. Um, and as a result, finding drugs that we already have off the shelf that have activity and a pathway is really nice to try to move forward. But I think that that shouldn't necessarily mean that we do it without um, designing trials using those drugs. And some of the issues raised with itraconazole are um, figuring out exactly what dose we would you would need to give chronically. You'd have to give a much higher dose than what we typically would use for antifungal therapy. So I think the idea of, oh, I'm being treated or prophylaxed for a fungal infection, might as well use itraconazole because maybe it'll give some effect for hedgehog, probably isn't going to get you enough levels to make a huge difference. Um, that's sort of number one. So um, Although they say, you know, patients have tolerated the higher levels. Sure. So why not just give them the higher dose? Right. So one is um, you could certainly give them the higher dose. Is that dose enough? And uh, one thing that we were talking, thought about in looking at this paper is, especially when you're talking about brain tumors, the um, experiments that they did in this study 
they put the tumor underneath the skin of the mouse. So when you're administering the drug to the mouse, the drug's easily penetrating into the tumor, and they demonstrated that they were achieving the same levels in the blood as in the tumor. But itraconazole is known for not being good at crossing what we call the blood-brain barrier, um, so getting into the tissue of the brain or surrounding the brain, and therefore it's generally not used for treatment of fungus that's in the brain or fungal meningitis. It's, people steer away to other agents. So that raises a concern about what levels of the drug, if you're administering this orally, can you really achieve in the brain? We don't know the answer to that. It may be that because the blood-brain barrier is disrupted in a tumor, that you are getting some levels, but we don't really know what they would be, and we don't know how high to drive the dose that you're administering to people to get a sufficient level in the brain and what side effects that might cause over the long run. So I think doing that is a very interesting idea, but you would want to do it in a controlled fashion, monitoring for toxicity and monitoring for effect. So of course, a similar situation occurred in uh, early leukemia uh, trials of systemic therapy where relapses occurred in the CNS, because that's a sanctuary site for many kinds of drugs. So the answer there was... Radiation. or give drugs intrathecally into right. the spinal fluid directly, right? So. Right. And that's interesting. I actually don't know if there has ever been any look at giving something like itraconazole in an intrathecal fashion. I, I've never seen a paper to that effect, um, but it is some, so something to consider. So one of the big challenges with this is delivering enough of a dose of the drug to the site of the tumor to have efficacy. So I guess the first question would be, you know, does it get there mm-hmm. without having to go through these extraordinary measures? And perhaps in a mouse model that could be testable, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't seem to have been tested in these two papers, uh, but um, could be tested in, and although it would be difficult to test in people, again, yeah. we don't get tissue from patients. The closest you could yeah. get would be to look at spinal fluid levels at very high doses of orally administered, but what that really means for what the tumor is seeing, I don't know that we would know the answer to that. And then what about the drug-drug interaction bit? Mm. So that's a challenge with itraconazole and probably one of the reasons why, even though it's actually a very effective antifungal drug, in a lot of ways has fallen out of favor um, for other drugs in the similar class, the azoles. Um, if you'll heard of voriconazole or posiconazole, there's many newer generation of azoles that um, have good antifungal spectrum but don't have the same degree of inhibition of the cytochrome P450 drug metabolizing enzymes the way the itraconazole does. And um, it's been pretty well established that that's a very potent interaction and there's a lot of medications including uh, anti-seizure medicines, including other antibiotics that you have to avoid because it can really cause uh, very high levels due to inhibition of the metabolism. So within the leukemia population, there's been a lot of um, reported cases of significant neurotoxicity, which is a known side effect of vincristine, when vincristine and itraconazole are given together, that it seems to really potentiate that. So if you're giving itraconazole as a single agent, you can probably drive the dose pretty high and try to achieve a level that you might be hoping for in a particular tissue. When you start to think about combination therapies, so as you kind of brought up nicely from the DIPG paper, say hedgehog is step one, one of the important drivers of the tumor, and if you inhibit that, that gives you some effect 
effect, but you also want to inhibit PDGF. As you said, a secondary um, combining a drug that hits PDGF and a hedgehog inhibitor might be difficult if itraconazole is causing a lot of drug-drug interactions. Not impossible, but close monitoring and side effects, so you run the risk of potential toxicities that you couldn't otherwise have predicted. It makes you wonder if vincristine and uh, itraconazole together are so uh, difficult, not just because they're affecting metabolism but of each other, but uh, both of them seem to inhibit hedgehog signaling. And so it, it makes you wonder if there's something there, too, that's making their toxicity is more severe when given together. I don't well, know. I think that's also an interesting point for the purposes of this paper in general, which is the idea that, you know, itraconazole is developed as an antifungal because it inhibits sterile synthesis in the fungal cell wall, but in reality it actually has this whole other pathway that it's acting on hedgehog, and maybe it's doing other things that we don't know about. Same thing for vincristine and a lot of drugs. So we develop agents because it hits X target, and it turns out later that, you know, that wasn't really what the whole point was in the first well, place. Well, I don't think we still know how steroids work. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> and right now this is really coming to the fore in leukemia therapy in that um, a drug developed to inhibit the RAS pathway, um, serafinib, uh, went through clinical trials at, uh, acting and looking at that pathway. And ultimately turns out that it, it is not very good in terms of hitting that pathway, but is an extremely good inhibitor of a molecule called FLT3 and is now going to be in the frontline trials for patients who have leukemias with FLT3 mutations. Turns out that serafinib is probably the best drug for that, which was not what it was designed for in the first place. So um, kind of brings to the fore of how much we think we know about what we're targeting and how much we need to learn about each drug. It could be a bit sobering about <laughs> how much we really don't know uh, about how these are working. Nevertheless, uh, that speaks to uh, the fact that there is a possibility of drug repositioning, you know, developing it for one disease but using it for another. In this case, you're using it for the same or similar disease, cancer, but uh, obviously different types or subsets. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, in fact, the whole cancer uh, field has been replete with not just repositioning but sort of figuring out how to use these best. And I think this finding about intraconazole is sort of the first step, uh, but it probably is where we were with vincristine 50 years ago. You know, is it something that we really can use? How can we use it safely? What combinations? What dosing? What route? Uh, and even better, are there chemistry modifications that should be made to it that could enhance its hedgehog signaling inhibition without its uh, drug interaction mm -hmm. uh, effects, for example? So... Um, you know, itraconazole-like molecules that could be developed by pharmaceutical industry, and, and will that be worth it? So it does seem like it's an interesting finding, um, but I'm not sure that it's going to be as simple as just taking a drug that's used for one disease and applying it to another. I think it opens an exciting opportunity for a clinical trial that could be developed reasonably quickly because the drug is available um, and trying to look at least at dosing. But um, it does make you wonder, especially since there are some hedgehog inhibitors that are out there in development right now, and even one that excitingly is available in pediatrics um, through Novartis, um, maybe that has better properties in terms of its degree of hedgehog inhibition and penetration for the brain um, that would make that more attractive as a first try if you're going to go after hedgehog. Don't know yet. Remains to be seen. So bottom line, I don't think, uh, we're not here to recommend any, any 
particular therapy or against any particular therapy, but uh, these are uh, early discoveries in models in the laboratory, and even though one of them is using a drug that's out there and readily available, really not ready for prime-time treatment of patients with cancer. You agree? I agree. I think it's an exciting pathway to look at and to really start to design trials to see what we can do for patients. Great. So, again, please, if you're listening to this anytime in the future and you have a comment about it or you were on the investigative team and want to clarify anything or you have questions, please email us at twipo, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. For today's email session, we don't have any yet because the podcasts haven't gone live, but hopefully they will in the next few weeks and we'll get some emails in and be able to have further discussion. So don't forget to send us a note. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.